Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to our weekly Women Today podcast. On the programme this week, we spoke to Fostering First, along with a couple who've been fostering for over 20 years, met some truly inspiring entrepreneurs at the first Isle Expo event, spoke to the mum whose act of breastfeeding in a local swimming pool landed her a piece in the Daily Mail, and we asked, do you butter your biscuits? But first, safe to say we were somewhat in awe of our Friday guest, astronaut, aquanaut and artist Nicole Stott. Yes, I said astronaut. Can you tell I'm a little excited? Our guest today, though, is a veteran astronaut with two space flights and 104 days living and working in space on both the Space Shuttle and the International Space Station. Now, that would be enough for most of us. But she's also a NASA aquanaut and holds the woman's world record for saturation diving following an 18-day mission on the Aquarius undersea habitat. And she is an artist who launched her first exhibition last night right here on the Isle of Man. We'll come to the rest of that later, but first... I'm intrigued. As a child, Nicole Stott, did you have a moment where you ran into a room and said, I'm going to be an astronaut? And everyone just kind of looked at you with that knowing smile and said, oh, okay, honey. No, no. (laughs) It was much later, actually. You know, I grew up uh, with a family that hung out at the local airport. My dad built a couple airplanes, aerobatic airplanes, and uh, I I think the inspiration came from there, certainly, and I I did watch that first moon landing and was in awe of that, for sure. Thought it was, you know, actually one of the coolest things I'd ever seen, but from that point, for a very long time, it never really crossed my mind that it was something that could be real for me. So I didn't think about it that way until much later when I was working at the Kennedy Space Center and had the chance to see what the job was more like, and At some point, I think it wasn't so much my family, but the people there that I uh, presented the, you know, what about this astronaut thing? You know, is there there any chance? And a couple of people that I consider to be mentors that encouraged me to apply. Because at some point, I think if you love to fly, you're going to think, well, what better place to fly than space if you have the chance? Absolutely. And did you have anybody there sort of trying to dissuade you because of your gender at all or were they all very supportive? No, absolutely not. And I, you know, one of the things I tell people when I make presentations to schools or other organizations is that I, I think... Uh, my family was wonderful about this as I was growing up. I never remember being told I couldn't do anything. And certainly when I showed an interest in something, they were, you know, my mom, my dad, my sisters, everybody totally supportive of it, even if it was something that they could never imagine doing them themselves. And, and I think that was true across the board. So very thankful for that. Did you have to be really fit what do you think about being me. an astronaut? <laughs> you know, your fitness and your health must be incredibly important. It, you know, it is really important. And I think what they they let you do, certainly the selection process will will weed some of that out if, if you haven't done that for yourself. And a big part of the selection is the medical testing that you go through. So there might be something you never even knew was wrong with you that uh, disqualifies you. Thankfully, I didn't have any of that happen. And... And then once you're in the office, it's kind of up to you to maintain, you know, maintain your physical, uh, your physical state as well as, you know, just general health. And all of the training that you do will will make you want to do that. Um, you know, when you're having to pull yourself in a, a you know 150 pound suit out of the space station or the space shuttle and emergency training, it's going to inspire you to stay in shape. So what then, because I had never heard this term before, what is an aquanaut and what's saturation diving? <laughs> so an aquanaut is somebody who spends an extended period of time living uh, underwater. 
And we did this in a like a school bus size habitat that's at about 60 feet underwater uh, in Key Largo or off the coast of Key Largo, Florida. And saturation diving basically just means that you've stayed underwater long enough that your body is saturated with nitrogen. And if you were to swim to the surface, it would not be a good thing. You would, you know, you would have the bend. So at 60 feet, once you're down there for an hour, if you stay longer than that, you know, there's all those dive tables and everything. If you stay longer than that, you have to do special things to get the nitrogen out of your system before you swim to the surface. Mm-hmm. And so, what were you actually doing on that bus-sized area? <laughs> that sounds like a really small area to be in for that well, amount of time. You know, it was wonderful, and it was certainly the best analog to flying in space on a space station because you're in a real extreme environment. Can't just swim to the surface now to get away from a problem. You have to deal with it there. You can't just swim out, you know, you can't just walk outside without special equipment on. So we treated all of our dives like spacewalks. Mm -hmm. And we had a real mission going on. We were doing a lot of uh, surface exploration type development. You know, what would you do for spacesuits, you know, on the surface of the moon again, or if we go to Mars and that kind of thing. And inside the habitat, we had uh, telerobotic surgery kinds of things going on. And you know, again, assessing our own bodies and, and the impact of the environment and pretty much parallel to what we would do in space. Gosh, that sounds amazing. Very do cool. You know, do you know what? I'm fascinated <laughs> by yeah. this. I feel honoured. I'm sure you do, Christy, to have you come on the show. And I'm just thinking, I'm sat here and I think it's just wonderful to think about you going to a dinner party and getting introduced to somebody and they say to you, so what do you do? Well, I'm an astronaut. You know, I mean, <laughs> what are those moments like for you? Well, you know, my husband gets really frustrated because my usual answer would be, well, I work in the astronaut office and, you know, <laughs> or, or I work away. I work for NASA. And, and he's like, nobody knows what that means. You know? And I'm like, well, that's, you know, that's OK. So, and then eventually the questions end up leading to, you know, the astronaut just, thing. Or what whatever. do they say? Well, there's a little look of disbelief, I think, <laughs> at first, but... It, it, it's really nice, though, because most people that ask that will then, you know, carry on and ask are actually interested in, in what you've done. And I feel really blessed to have had that experience. And, you know, the things I'm doing now and certainly when I was in the office, you know, I love sharing that experience. And I feel like I'm, I, I, mean, I feel obligated to do that, both for, you know, what's what's our planet like? How do we appreciate that more as well as the wonderful things going on in space on the space station. It's interesting because I was reading a book recently called Moon Dust about the, the few people that have actually been to the moon. And one of the things it says is that there's that question, well, you've been to the moon. What do you do now? You know, where do you go? And you've been in space and lived in space. I mean, what, what's it like coming home from something like that? You know, the whole experience is really very, I don't know, surreal, I guess, is is a good word to use. And you know, everything from having been there and believing that I had been there. So very thankful for the pictures and videos. And, you know, to being in space and then landing and as a crew looking around at each other and, and go, you know, like, holy moly, an hour ago we were in space and now we're back on the planet again. But I think it's all about, you know, for me, it's been every step of the way just treating it all like an adventure. And I'm just on another adventure now that just doesn't happen to be in space. And I can tell you this art thing is, uh, it's got its own you know, challenges and different kinds of appeals. And um, it's a little bit scary too, doing this, <laughs> having an exhibit for the first time with people seeing your stuff. 
And we're very fortunate that you decided to launch on the Isle of Man. This is the first place you've actually hung your art on the walls, isn't it? Why did you want to do that here? Well, I, the Isle of Man is a really very special place, and it started out that way for me. My, my husband and his family are from here, and so I got introduced to the island that way. And I think you can talk about all different kinds of, of the character of the island, whether it's the, the beauty aspect of it or the way that coastline changes depending where you go around the island and the people for sure, and just very thankful to be invited to to show my art here at the Sale Gallery. And my friend John Sheath is the one who kind of facilitated it all and, and made it happen, and I'm very thankful to him for that. And you now, you now describe yourself as a sci art advocate. What is that? Well, I think you know, the experience I had with NASA and my university training and all of that, you could think of that as very much a technical, science-y kind of thing. But my whole life, I've enjoyed artsy, craftsy kinds of things as well. And the more I experienced the science and technical side of things, the more I realized that the majority of people who are involved with that also have some kind of outlet, some kind of artistic or creative outlet that goes along with that. And I think it's it's a really impressive tie between the two things. And I think there's a lot of opportunity, especially for kids, to allow them to recognize that when they're going through school. And if we can get away from this, you know, driving somebody to choose either tech or art as a path and allowing them to, to integrate that in the way they learn, I think it's a much more uh, meaningful learning experience for kids. And then I was talking to a friend of mine at the exhibition last night, Rich, and he said, please, please, please ask her, what is it that she misses most when she's back home about the space station and vice versa? When you're at the space station, what is it you miss most about home? It's kind of, you know, it's one of those questions that's really difficult to answer. I think for the what do I miss about space, uh, everything, the whole feel of the experience, the floating, floating in front of a window with your crewmates looking out the window at Earth or at your spaceship and everything about it. And the thing I miss about Earth when I'm there is most certainly my family. That's the most difficult thing about mm -hmm. being in space is not having them there with you, especially when you know they would love it to be there. And, and certainly the way the earth is, smells, feels. I did, ha I did want to ask you about your family because it, it's great for you, obviously, with what you're doing. But how did your family actually cope with your, um, with, you know, with your career? It must have been quite tough for them on the ground. You know, I think the people that have it the hardest are our family members. And that's everything from the, the cycle of training that we go through with the travel back and forth uh, over the years to the different countries and the time away from home as well as the time on orbit and them thinking about you in this environment that's totally different to here on Earth and and certainly watching you when you're um, strapped into the rocket and going to launch and and land. That, that is a very difficult thing. for It's hard for me when I watch my friends do it. You know, you, there's a, a, a huge respect for the, the power that is behind something like that. But very thankful for their I suppose support. also that you do have the communication that you didn't used to have as well. Yeah, which is great. You know, I could call home every day multiple times and and that was really wonderful once a week we did a video conference and the communication has gotten better with with that live internet we talked about you know now we can actually email kind of real time and we can um, use the the, the FaceTime-y kinds of things that you know you just couldn't you know in the old days I had to walk what is that uphill both ways kind of thing float uphill both ways and now it's really quite nice for communication.
start of the show, we can now go down and join Joe Pack, who is live from the Isle Expo. How's it going down there, Joe? Do you know what? I honestly didn't know really what this was all about, if I'm absolutely honest with you, until I turned up today and uh, done a bit of research on it. I was to speak to the guys that I've been speaking to, but do you know what, Beth? This place is absolutely fantastic. There is so much networking going on. It is absolutely awesome. I mean, you're hearing people on the phones doing deals. There's investments going on. It, it is absolutely, oh, it's just, it, it's really exciting, actually. Um, I have I've got with me at the moment Alex Hunter who was speaking this morning and if anyone knows anything about launching a startup and the power of branding it's you Alex I would say former head of online marketing for the Virgin Group is that right that's right wow thank you very much it's, it's fun to be here I, I love the Isle of Man Listen, you've got a connection here I do I have family roots here my uh, maternal great-grandparents were, were born here and I'm from 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 Castletown that is unbelievable, yeah. isn't it? So, so I'm basically at home. This is home <laughs> for me. What's the experience been like for you so far today? It's been fantastic. I mean, what a what a group of people uh, that are just here and excited and, and wanting to listen. And you're right. I've heard so many of those same conversations. And the value just isn't from the content on the on the stage, but also the little sidebar conversations that are happening. I, I think it's really, really exciting. There's a palpable buzz in the in the room. So you enjoyed presenting this morning? I did. I had a blast. It was a fun audience, and they, they laughed at my jokes, which frankly is the most important <laughs> thing. But we had some really fun conversations. So um, just talking about Von, um, with Virgin Online um, Marketing and um, working with Richard Branson, yeah. um, tell me a little bit about what that was like. It was fantastic. I, I was part of the team that was fortunate enough to found Virgin America, which was uh, an airline, still is an airline. Uh, and I joined when it was just an idea. And we had the, obviously the power of, of, of the Virgin brand and Richard, who was so passionate. And he's, he's such a genuinely nice guy, which is refreshing because so many billionaires you see, like, he's kind of a jerk. But <laughs> Richard is, is just the nicest guy. And I, and, I, and I mean that with all sincerity. And it was a, it was a real pleasure working for him. I mean, he was, uh, he was passionate and interested and engaged and always throwing out really interesting and fun ideas to, to if not directly related to the product, to get people talking about it. Like when we did our, our Vegas inaugural, he jumped off the top of a building, <laughs> throwing free tickets down as he went. I mean, only Richard Branson. Was that not your idea? <laughs> you know what? It was his idea. He was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Why not? It'll be funny. Absolutely fantastic. You've got a huge presence with online because you have a travel show now that's on YouTube as well, don't you? So you really do believe the way forward is to get online more. I do, and I think it's lowered the, the barriers to entry for, for content creation. I mean, before, the, the ability to create your own show was in the hands of, of a few multimedia conglomerates. Now, anyone with, a, with an iPhone, which is producing broadcast quality content, can can create something and, and, and potentially millions and millions of people can see it and that's a wonderful thing. So why did the travel show come up? I, travel is in my blood and uh, a few years ago I just saw there wasn't a lot of content that really celebrated some of the world's greatest cities for, for people who travel a lot. So it's not like, you know, when in Paris, go and see the Eiffel Tower. It's, it's here's how to get in from the airport, here's how to not make a fool of yourself when you're ordering, you know, yakitori in Tokyo and things <laughs> like that. So, and it's really fun. I mean, you get to sort of explore and experience and share these wonderful, wonderful cities all around the world. Okay, so this is all on YouTube, and we talk a lot on Women Today about the usage of uh, social media and YouTube with our kids and having to control it, and here's you promoting it, not doing us it. parents any favors. It's and not, you're a parent I of am, two kids. I am, it's not easy, is it? But it's, it's YouTube and, and Twitter and all of those things have totally changed the way that that generation consumes content. They are the on-demand generation. It's their expert. Like I took my, I took my three and a half year old 
Uh, he's five and a half now, but he was about three at the time to a Fulham game, football match. And about halfway through the second half, he's like, Daddy, I need a wee. Can you pause it? <laughs> pause. He expected me to pause a live football match. And that, that's, that was his reality. That's their reality. And that's, I think it's a great thing. I mean, we are only consuming the content that we want to consume. Um, and, you know, it, it's a challenge when you're trying to monitor and understand the, the content that your kids are consuming. But I think, you know, we have to give them credit as well for making good decisions and equipping them with the information that, that not everything out there is going to be um, healthy and good for them to, to, to see. But um, just, you know, helping them understand and, ma and make good choices is really what it boils down to, at least from my perspective. Okay, so how did you get into corporate speaking then? Uh, a friend of mine, a long time ago when I was a virgin, ran a, a conference and uh, a speaker pulled out at the last minute. And he's like, hey, can you do me a, a favor? And uh, I'd, I'd literally flown in from New York that night, went straight to the airport, walked on stage, opened with a joke, people laughed, and I was hooked, just hooked. I loved it. So wouldn't you just prefer to be a comedian on the stage then? <laughs> no, I think the, the thing about being a comedian is you have to be funny, and that's kind of, you know, that's hard. But, you know, I just like telling stories, um, and, and that's really what is what is has come from it as I get to stand on stage all around the world and and share stories that that have made me smile and I hope uh, inspire uh, one or two people in the you audience. did a great job today okay one final question for you if you could speak at any event past or future or present what would it be oh that is a really really good question I would love to speak to the UN Wow. and just sort of go can, can we just chill for a little bit can we you know? <laughs> You know, and just, Do you think they'd listen? No, they would, they would probably have me escorted out of the room, but uh, just the opportunity to, to, to sort of say, look, it's not as bad as you think uh, on the ground, um, you know, away from, from, your, from your ivory towers. We all get along just fine. Um, but yeah, I think that would be fine. What a lovely question. I'm stealing that. <laughs> That's great. Thanks, Beth. Back to you. Thank you very much, Joe, making some deals and networking there at uh, the Villa It's Marina. impressive stuff, isn't it? We also want your thoughts on this one because Sharon Osborne, the wife and manager of the rock star Ozzy, has been slammed by a family friend of the McCanns for saying it was insane that they left their daughter Madeline alone on holiday, leading to her going missing. Sharon was on the US chat show The Talk and was talking about whether parents should leave children alone without supervision. The British blog caused major controversy when she asked if she should leave her sleeping 10-month-old baby alone at home while she ran to the grocery store 50 yards away. More than half of the parents said they would never consider it, but a surprising number of mums were fine with the idea. Is it ever okay to leave a sleeping baby home alone? No! Mm. Uh, and this is insane! <laughs> Well, then she then brought up the case of Maddie's disappearance, saying, I will tell you a very quick story. There was a husband and wife on holiday in Portugal. They left their baby in the room sleeping, sleeping while they went to dinner in the restaurant. While they were in the resort, their baby was taken. Well, Madeline, uh, who was about to turn four years old when she went missing back in May 2007, has never been found. The friend of the McCanns has slammed Osborne, saying, It's very disappointing when someone with such a high profile makes this sort of ignorant, ill-informed comment. She should think about the effect it could have on Madeline's brother and sister, as well as the wider family. Kate and Jerry have never forgiven themselves. 
Well, Katie Price yesterday agreed with Sharon, speaking on Loose Women, the mother of five, was applauded by the audience for saying, it doesn't matter who you are, you don't leave your children. One, I am on Sharon's side. It doesn't matter who you are. <laughs> you do not leave your children. Well, if you're on holiday, if you're on holiday, you know, your kids could sleep in buggies, they sleep on the side. What in your right mind would you leave your kids in a room? I'm totally on the side. Doctors or no doctors, you do not leave your kids in a room. I don't care if they say it's a safe place, whether you could see them or not. You don't. Don't mm. take them on holiday if you want to leave them in a room. Uh, Katie did then go on to generate a number of complaints from viewers about a rather candid discussion on sex toys, but I digress. Uh, what do you think <laughs> about what Sharon Osbourne has said? Is it ever OK to leave your children unsupervised? And should she have made those comments about the McCanns at all? Do text us on this one, seven. or you can email studio at manxradio.com. You can go to Facebook or Twitter as well. I'm going to start this off because... It's really irritated me. I think there's, there's two separate issues here, and we'll probably deal um, with the, the leaving the children unattended in just a moment. But I really want to question who Sharon Osbourne thinks she is by publicly criticising the McCanns as if she's the model of, of perfect parenting. I'm sure there are lots of people who would think it was insane to have cameras in to film your family's every waking moment. I mean, that's not necessarily the best course of action in parenting. Uh, two of her three children have had high-profile breakdowns, they've had drug issues, and I, I just think, who is she to, to criticise other parents in that way? Yeah, I'm with you. And the fact that also this is a high-profile person um, who I don't have very much respect for at all. Um, however, you know, she has been in the press an awful lot recently with her own marriage problems, hasn't she, with um, Ozzy Osbourne. And, uh, you know, I just wonder whether she's actually in the right frame of mind anyway to be making these kind of comments. Because, I'm not being funny, but if you're going through a situation that she's been through recently, you wouldn't be wanting to be on TV anyway as it is. And also, Katie Price, you know, I'm sorry, but again, I don't think I have a lot of respect for her. Um, just talking about the story itself though with the McCanns and actually leaving their children you know this is a really really tough one because this this goes down to the way we parent and you know how you do it individually and that you shouldn't really be judged and unfortunately they have been so judged for the decision that they took and what they decided to do and what they thought was right at that particular time you know and it's incredibly unfortunate what occurred and what has happened would I ever leave my children in a room sleeping with a baby listening happening and go for a meal? Possibly would. Possibly would. And, you know, I just think, there for the grace of God, go any of us. Because we've all probably left our children at some point. You know, we run into the petrol station to pay for petrol. I wouldn't necessarily think of grabbing all my children out of the car and taking them in and bringing them back. And, you know, I had a, a really horrendous instance once with my middle son. We'd just been to the Gaiety Theatre. We came out. He wasn't even three, I don't think, at the time. I turned around to put something in the bin. Turned around, couldn't see him. Assumed he'd gone with my friends. But he'd, just, he'd been swept along by the crowd and he was actually up at the top of Broadway. And it was my friend Catherine who, thank God, found him. But that was after 20 minutes. You know, it, that sort of thing can happen to everyone, uh, to anyone. I realise this situation was slightly different. But who are we to judge it? And also, it's not just about, you know, there's all this emphasis on leaving your child somewhere don't we let our children go out and about and enjoy the outside and well they don't so much anymore but you know we used to we were out running around all over the place when we were kids and our parents didn't have a clue where we were and surely that it's, yeah. anything could happen wherever you are possibly think we need to think of the age of the child that they were at the time I mean Madeline when she went missing was she four 
I think. Just coming up to four. Four. Yeah, so be, being young. out and about, maybe not so much at that stage. Yeah. But I know what you mean, because actually after primary school, you'd be out maybe in the garden playing, wouldn't you? And your mum would be, I mean, you know, in England, would you let your child go out into the garden and play on their own anymore? You know, I, I just think again, it, again, we're back into that really judgmental society. Mm. And I think everybody needs to stop commenting on it. I mean, obviously we're adding our viewpoint, but at the end of the day, they are living with this now, you know, and someone like Sharon Osbourne is not helpful, you know, or Katie Price, because it's reliving the horrific memories that they've, you know, they've made a mistake and they're never going to forget that. I think the thing is we can learn from that. I went to um, a function once. It was in a hotel in the UK and the hotel room that we were staying in was very close to where the function was. We thought, well, you know, could we leave our, our children in there if I go down with the baby monitor strapped to my head? When it came down to it, I couldn't do it. So I spent the whole evening sulking in the room with the children and I didn't even get a party bag. Uh, David, your thoughts on this? Well, I think to do with Sharon Osbourne and Katie Price, I think there's no such thing as bad publicity. Here we are talking about them. Um, I think when it comes to leaving children in, in rooms or leaving them alone, with Katie Price's comments about not leaving them even in a separate room, well, I'm sorry. If you're a mother and you're on your own, you're cooking a meal, pasta or something like that, you're not going to be holding your baby in one arm while you've got a boiling pan of water in front of you. You're going to leave the baby in the room asleep where it's safe. Um we don't live in the perfect world. Things go wrong and people are people. People make mistakes. Um, I personally think it's acceptable in many certain situations to leave your child alone. If they're comfortable and you know they're in there and there's there's no way they can get into harm, then fine. But uh, as Chrissy was saying, you know, we let people out to play. Who knows what happened? You don't know. If people want to get to a child, they will try and find the best way to get to a child. You know, we can't cotton ball wool them up all the time, can we? Cotton ball ball them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I like right <laughs> phrase. I'm going to steal another, that one. Another word given birth Ooh. to. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Right here on the show. Um, we've had lots of uh, of your reaction on this one. Let's just take a few comments now. Sharon Osbourne certainly shouldn't be offering parenting advice, but I think she has said what many people are thinking. The McCanns were in the wrong for leaving the, uh, the children on their own. If they were in a public sector house, middle class families, they would have been a public outcry and not sympathy. Uh, Val says on no account should those children have been left. They could have choked on vomit, wandered out to the swimming pool and had an accident that way. And uh, one more interesting discussion, says Nick. I'm with you on this. Making general comments and observations on a particular subject is fine but when it comes to a personal attack on an individual who may be suffering massively through their own guilt, as you said, that's unacceptable. And I just want to pick up the comment that was about, you know, vomiting in your sleep. I mean the thing is we don't sleep with our children, do we? So that could actually really happen happen every night. Elaine says on Facebook I don't know about being insane but they certainly did an insane thing by leaving their children alone the way they did and Agnes goes on to say going abroad back 20 years ago people were out and about with their kids in buggies with a blanket over them sleeping uncomfortably but soundly whilst the parents were still having a good time it was a family holiday Women Today brought to you by citywing.com for your next flight away I was in the baby pool with my husband and four children when Amelia who was four months at the time needed to be fed so I sat sat on a step on the centre island of the pool and discreetly breastfed her. Um, My legs were in the water at the time and her feet were in the water. A senior member of staff came over to the poolside, beckoned my husband over and said, is that your wife? Can you ask her to stop doing that? Then I went over and she said that my breastfeeding was causing offence to some of the younger lifeguards, an indecency and nudity issue, that it would offend other children using the pool. She said that her lifeguards had complained to her in the past and it's not the first time you've done it. She said it's a hygiene issue, so I asked if it would be okay to do it on the poolside. 
and she said it would still offend the lifeguards and be an indecency issue. I said, I don't think it's legal for you to tell me that. My family and I all left together. I've never, ever at any time left my husband alone with three children in the pool, like it's been said in the media. The adult-child ratio thing is an afterthought for the pool. It's damage limitation. I'd breastfed on that step loads of times before, so if there was a grave danger with the adult-child ratio, why wasn't I spoken to sooner? The ratio was never mentioned in the report that they paid £700 for or in the defence document they handed into court. Plus, I breastfeed holding the baby with one arm. My other arm was free for another child. Breastfeeding doesn't stop you from being able to watch your children. With a small baby, one arm's always occupied anyway. You can't ever put them down, so what's the difference? I never broke the adult-child ratio. I was never ever offered a chair, a towel or any help. I was never permitted to breastfeed on the poolside or in the dry spectator area. I think to this day they still don't allow it on the poolside and I wonder if they would let a wet woman out of the pool into the dry spectator area to breastfeed even now. After, after that I felt shaken, I'd never been spoken to like that before. So I emailed a member of the board to explain what had happened and thought I'd get an apology. Instead, the board member phoned my husband and ridiculed me in a sexist and degrading way. It was humiliating. But I thought, we've planned to go swimming on Saturday. Why should I feel bullied out of it? Why should my children not get to go? Surely the pool will, they'll Google the law like I did. Um, so we returned to the pool on the Saturday and the lifeguard came over to ask me to stop breastfeeding. I just have to stop you there, Victoria, because yeah. it does sound almost like then you did deliberately go back to do the same thing to try and provoke a reaction. Well, no, I had a breastfed baby, an exclusively breastfed baby. Of course, I'm going to have to breastfeed her within that time that I was at the pool. It's my local swimming pool. Why should I not get to go? Why should my children not get to go? So you went back, but you got the same reaction. Hardly surprising, I suppose, given what you've I, been through. No, I thought they'd, they'd Google the law and realise. I thought they'd think, oh, no, we were wrong there. They'd Google the law and issues regarding breastfeeding around in or around a swimming pool, and they'd think, oh, we shouldn't have done that. We made a mistake. Can you understand, though, why some people might see you as being militant at that point, though? I, I just don't see there's an issue with it. It never crossed my mind that anyone would have an issue with it. Well, I um, contacted other swimming pools last week and the general policy is, is that breastfeeding is not allowed in the water. And certainly, you know, you're not allowed to eat ordinary food in and around the pool, so why should breastfeeding be any different? That, that was um, what was said a lot online in the comments. Um, people said, well, I don't get to eat a burger and chips in the pool, so why should, why should babies get to breastfeed? Um, but the right to eat a burger and chips in public is not protected by statute. The right to breastfeed is, and that's because breastfeeding is unique. Babies can't wait long between feeds and often cluster feed a number of times within an hour. Women need to be able to feed on demand or breastfeeding just won't be so successful. It's taken me four attempts at breastfeeding to learn this. A lot of people don't realise you can't plan around breastfeeding. It's no wonder we have one of the lowest rates of breastfeeding in the world when women fear the stigma so they either don't breastfeed at all, or they end up stuck in the house and a bit isolated breastfeeding, or resort to a bottle when that's not what they'd hoped for. Ultimately though, when this was settled and you were awarded the out-of-court payment, you did decide to go to the Daily Mail. Some people are going to see that as you sensationalising the story, wanting to get as much as you possibly could out of it. I mean, what do you say to that? I stand by everything that was written in the Daily Mail, 
They spent all week with me, checking my correspondence, interviewing me, grilling me. I know it was written in a sensational tabloid style, but everything was true. I spoke to the English media because I thought they would be braver than the Manx media. But again, though, presumably you were paid for it. People are going to think that you are just trying to get as much as you possibly could out of it. And now I hope to raise awareness and hoped to get them to change their rule. If I just wanted some compensation, I would have taken the £2,000 from the pool and run and kept quiet. I don't enjoy the abuse I've received. I've received horrendous online abuse, but I felt it was so important to speak out. And ultimately, what do you think this has done for the cause of breastfeeding women, would you say? Raised awareness. I hope women feel confident that they can do it anywhere, even in a swimming pool. pool. <laughs> That's still the rule. Well, that, that remains to be changed. seen. That remains to be seen, doesn't it? The reason I didn't go all the way to court, I do wish I'd had my day in court, but the reason I didn't go all the way, because even if I'd have won at court, they couldn't be forced to change their rule or apologise. So I hoped by following due legal process and speaking out that they'll eventually change their rule. In my view, the fact they settled was an admission I was right, that they couldn't fight it. It seems if breasts are sexual and commercial, they're fine, but if they're used to feed a baby, they're deviant, and that's bizarre to me. I think the only argument people have is, yuck, that's weird, which isn't a rational argument. I was noticed by somebody who was trying to form a management team and bring people together to launch the first uh, GSM mobile phone network in New Zealand. So that happened quite fortuitously, just a bit of luck really, but um, built, uh, built that business and we commercially launched that. That was a corporate startup, so it was a fantastic opportunity to learn so many, many elements of business in a very corporate way, so quite protected, great experience. And then you built and sold Omega Logic. Um, when and how do you know it's the right time to actually sell a company? I think selling the company is very, very difficult because uh, you really can't know what's going to happen in the future. So you have an opportunity to sell perhaps, but you don't know whether next year your profits are going to be better or worse. And you, you really, it's a very difficult uh, thing to do to time it correctly. However, for me, it was very much that we had achieved what we had set out to achieve. We had built quite a business, a business of quite some substance and quite some scale quite quickly. And we felt that in order for the business to flourish, it really did need to be uh, within a much, much larger organization. And we sold it to uh, a Fortune 500 uh, American company. And they could then really take it on and, and build it even bigger and better. So when you actually invest in a business, are you literally looking at the end results about you know, when you will sell it? I think it very much depends. Uh, certainly at the outset, I'm looking for great, a great management team with a good track record, with a really good product or service, something that is demonstrably wanted by the market, and also that has underlying uh, fundamental good economics, you know, good margins, good cash flow, these kinds of things. However, as an investor, you do want to make sure that if you need to, that you can get your money back at some point. <laughs> Otherwise, if you put money into a business and there's no real expectation of getting it back, well, that's charity. 
So if you are putting money into companies, you do want to be able to anticipate that at some point in the future you can realize a profit on that investment. So yes, it's a question that needs to be considered at the outset before you even make that first investment. I mean, you're incredibly business-minded and obviously being a woman, does this ever change anyone's opinion when they first meet you? I don't know what, whether their opinions are changed or not. I was not very mindful of my gender as I was building my business. I was just so focused on winning contracts, beating my competitor, producing a superior product and service. I didn't really have time to worry about my gender. <laughs> I just thought that if I worked really, really hard and continued to do that and continued to put myself forward and really push my business forward and overcame all the obstacles that came in my way, that I would, I would progress regardless of my gender. So you don't think that people treat you any differently because you are female? I I wouldn't say that all people don't treat me differently. Certainly. Come on, tell us some stories. <laughs> well, there are some people. I mean, I was I met with someone just this just a week ago, and uh, we were having this very uh, detailed conversation. And peppered throughout the conversation, he kept asking me questions about uh, my family life. So he would say to me, "Well, what does your husband do?" And then five minutes later, he would say, so um, how many children do you have and who, who picks them up from school? And then a few minutes later, he would ask some more uh, detailed questions. And I, I got quite angry inside. I how thought, do you react to that? Well, I always try and focus the conversation back on, on business, back what we're here to discuss, because I don't believe that a man would ever get asked those questions about what his wife does or who picks the children up from school, and really it's not their business. That is my challenge and my, my husband's challenge to make sure that our family life has run well, but when I'm in a business meeting, I am there in order to progress some business initiative, and that's what we need to focus on. Would you say sometimes, however, it's not just male competition that you come up against, because actually, do you think that it's quite competitive within women? Woman to woman in business? I have never seen it be uh, competitive female to, to female, not at all. In fact, I've seen the, the opposite. I have found women to be uh, supportive, collaborative, helpful. I, I have never experienced a, a situation where I have looked at a woman and thought, wow, you've really surprised me about how horrid you could be. That's never happened. <laughs> so um, I, and I don't think I've been particularly lucky. I think women are very, very good at supporting one another. How do you manage your life? You've got three children, yeah. you've got three boys, and obviously you've got a successful career. How do you fit everything in? I am very, very organized. and I. Uh, that is really the key to it. I do plan everything and I'm constantly thinking things forward about who needs to be where logistically or what needs to happen. So I am a big planner. We live by lists at home. My poor husband gets lists from me all the time about which <laughs> child needs to be where with which kit and what pickup time and what heavy. So that does happen. So lots of lists, lots of organization and I scenario plan. And I've taught my children this too. So I do pick my kids up from school a couple of times each week and I will say to them, you know, kids, probably once a term Mummy's going to be late because a meeting is overrun or I've missed my train. Hang on, hang on. once a term. Just well, once. <laughs> maybe just once. But And we talk that through. And I say to my children, let's just imagine that's going to happen. And then I explain to them that they'll get taken into the you know, by reception, they'll sit in reception at school and the teacher will look after them and I'll be in contact by phone. It will all be okay. And so when that happens, and I don't mean for it to happen, I would prefer that it doesn't, but when it does and sometimes life takes over and these things happen, uh, then the children are prepared. So I do scenario plan and that does help them. <laughs> they must be so proud of their mum though, being so successful. 
Oh, they are so proud. Um, they really, really are. And uh, they got to go to Buckingham Palace with me when I got my CBE. Now, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Do you think that was one of your proudest moments when you did get your CBE? It really was, Joe, because it was so. I was so proud because my children were there, my husband was there, and what was fascinating to me uh, to observe as a mother is that from that point forward, whenever anybody asked my oldest child in particular what he wanted to be, he said, "I want to run a business. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be like my mum." So he doesn't say someone off Dragon's Den. Then he says, "I want to be like my mum." <laughs> you know, children look primarily to their parents as role models. We are there to guide them, aren't we? And if they can, if my sons can see something in me that they, uh, that, that makes them uh, want to do better in the world, well, my goodness, it's all worth it. What lifelong lessons do you think that you've learned along the way? I think for life lessons, there, you have to really be true to yourself. You have to do things that you can live with, particularly in business. So you have to pursue an idea or an opportunity that you feel very strongly about or very passionately about. Uh, you have to treat people very much like you want to be treated. And if you do that, then, then business tends to go well. Um, I also think that when obstacles come along, and they will, that you do have to have a bit of grit. You do have to steel yourself, put your head down and think, I really have to think my way through this or I have to work hard or I have to talk to more people to figure out how I'm going to untangle this problem uh, and, and sometimes it just comes down to that just a little bit of determination a little bit of harder work in order that you can see yourself through. There are currently around 50 foster carers but there is a need for more and that's what we're going to be talking about with our guests this afternoon as we're in the middle of foster care fortnight. Well two of the current foster carers are with us in the studio. We've got Eileen and Tommy Malone. Thank you both uh, so much for being here. Eileen uh, you've been fostering for what over 20 years? Yes 21 years. Why did you start? We just our house was always full of children anyway. We had three boys of our own, and they always had friends around. And we had got quite a big house, a big Victorian terrace, and there were always friends staying overnight. And we kept thinking that there, there, there will be children who need. That. We honestly didn't think there would be such a need for it in the Isle of Man. We thought it would be a couple of you know, the kids now and again. So we applied, and we did the training, were approved, and we couldn't believe how much need there is. There are so many, and it's so unfair, that because you think this is such a lovely place to live and everybody's happy and that there are so many children in need, there really are. And we've, we've loved it, we, as we've done it for 21 years and we've enjoyed every minute of it, and well, to- most minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and Tommy, what would you say that as a family, because as Eileen mentioned, you have got three boys, what as a family have you got out of this fostering experience? Um, the experience that we've had has been um, really positive. Um, I think the satisfaction of um, turning children's lives around um, is just amazing, you know, when you, when you see the difference you can make fostering, and we've really enjoyed it over the years, and we've seen such a, such a difference in the children that we've had over the years, it's uh, really nice. Well, Eileen, Tommy and Ricky, thank you so much for being with us. We're going to be answering all your questions about what it takes to become a foster carer and the training and, crucially, Ricky, the support, because there is a lot of support available for people who decide to foster. Uh, there's a heck of a lot of support that we offer at Fostering First. There's uh, Once people have um, applied to foster, we offer them um, a sort of preparation training. 
But once they're approved as foster carers, there's a whole range of training courses available to our foster carers and most of them take uh, very good advantage of that. Uh, we also um, try and support foster carers and their own children and the children that they look after, foster children. Uh, with a range of activities throughout the year, whether that's sort of Christmas get-togethers or sort of picnics in the summer, uh, those sorts of things. And we're always on the end of the phone, not just sort of during office hours, but sort of we're running out of our service, so uh, there's somebody available 365 days of the year. Well, Eileen, you have done all sorts of fostering, yeah. but, but when you went into it, you really wanted to focus on teenage boys, which, as Ricky has said, is an area that can be quite difficult, difficult to find. One. Yeah, well, with only having boys, we thought, oh, now as we're young teenagers at the time, we thought we don't really want to bring girls into that mix who've got problems, you know, because it, it doesn't really work out sometimes. But we've had boys and girls and little ones, and it's just that they've all become members of our family. Some of them we've had to say, we can't give them the help they need. They, they need something we can't give them. And they've they've been taken away, but most of them have stayed. We've got five who are part of our family now. They're, they're scattered all over the world, and but we're still their family, and it's really nice to have it. And the whole idea of family is interesting, isn't it, Tommy? Because you do have your three sons, and you refer to them as fostering as well. They're very much a key part of the yes, process. Yes, they have to be. Yes, yes, yes. You have to sit down and talk to your um, your own children about fostering because they play a big part in it as well and we've been lucky with um, our children because they've been absolutely fantastic um, over the years you know they've uh, helped us an awful lot supported me and Eileen over the years and it's been it's been great. Eileen how do you deal with the issue of emotional attachment because I'm, I'm guessing that when you, you welcome a child into your home and, you, and particularly if they've had issues and you're supporting them through it Letting them go after however long you've had them it must is, be difficult. It is quite hard, but you know, you, you know, you're hoping they're going back to, to a family that's learned something, and they're going, they're, the children are going to be happier. And we've kept in contact with most of them. We still see nearly all of them. There's a couple we don't who live out of town, and we don't see them. But we've tried to keep in touch with all of them, and they're still part of our lives, really. And in terms of, of the issues that some of the children you've looked after have. How do you deal with that? Because some of them must be quite specific needs. Some of them are. Some of them, um, it, it is difficult sometimes, but you just try not to judge them because it's you're trying to give them a fresh start because often they're from families that have had troubles and the children have been so, stood out at school as being a bit neglected and a bit rough and, and you know, they're, they're sort of marked. So when they come to us, it's a fresh start for them and you try not to judge and explain to them what it is you, what you want them to do and how you want them to behave. And they don't always do it. But most of them do come round in the end and they realise, you know, where the bread's, what side the bread's put it on and if they want to stay, they do try and most of them have tried and have fitted in and we've, we've, we've had, I say we've had some that haven't, but most of them have been good. I just wonder about the, the impact on, on you as a couple. How do you cope with that? How have you dealt with well, those sort of things? Together, haven't we? We've always shared the responsibility of it. Even when Tommy worked full time, it, it was a joint decision for everything. And we just talked about things and we've honestly found that the children have they've reacted well to it. They've responded the way we've wanted. And we have had children who've been in trouble with the police and been in trouble at school and been suspended. But you just go through it. And I think some of it is if it's your own child who's doing these things, you feel a guilt and think, oh, what have I done wrong? When you're trying to help a child, it's totally different. You think, you know, I know why he or she is doing this. They've had Because some of the heads are so mixed up that they don't know what day it is because they've had such a tough time. And if you're there for them, most of them do come through. and you, But you don't feel that guilt of, oh, they shouldn't be doing this. And we need your help.
to settle an argument in the Women Today camp. Uh, do you put butter on digestive biscuits or do you just eat them plain the way they're meant to be? The way they're meant to be, Beth. You don't How put- did this come up? Well, yesterday I bought in some digestive biscuits. You weren't here, so I bought in four, so there was enough for me and to have three and Christy to have one. And, <laughs> and then you said, did you say... I said, have you got any butter to put on them? That's but, the most random question to ask with a biscuit. Would no, you do that not, with a chocolate because, chip cookie? No, it's only, it's digestive. So I, I like putting butter on my digestive. It's just weird. Do you then dunk it in your tea with it on? I don't do tea. Do you do dunking? Um, See, the, the, whoa, whoa, there's two weird things there. Don't do tea. And I put butter on I my I never trust biscuit. anyone that drink, doesn't drink tea. This, no. this is who you're now working with, girls. <laughs> Sorry. It's just wrong. It's got enough butter in the biscuit. You don't need to put it on However, it. However, cheese and digestives. No, That's just a have a digestive biscuit. If necessary, eat it with a bar of dairy milk. That's quite or nice. Or have a chocolate yeah. digestive. It's not yeah, the same. that's exactly. I've had it's this argument with her for over a year and a half. It's like, why would you need to have a dairy you milk and a it. digestive separate? It's not the you, same. You just buy a packet of chocolate, chocolate oh, digestives. digestives. You are such a confusing food. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, basically, Joe and I are right. Christy's wrong, and we need you to back us up on it. So, so let us know true. what you think. Wonderful uh, six, wonderful seven, or you can uh, email studio at maxradio.com. You can also go to the Women's Day Facebook page. As I was just telling Stu, some of the things that people put on their digestive biscuits it's just wrong spray cream yeah I know I know that's a great one Peter put that on our Facebook page didn't he but what I'm loving about Facebook right now is there's huge debates going on about <laughs> digestive biscuits wonderful always oh, the subjects that matter hey, maybe, uh, maybe we'll get some freebies <laughs> McFitties, McFitties, you're listening, you're listening. Well, I have bought some digestive biscuits and some butter in today, okay? So whoever wins at the end of the show will eat it the right how, way. How are we deciding who wins this? Well, w- w- the public will hey, decide. how many digestives can you put in your mouth at once? Loads. Let's right, go that's, that's that the, the video. That's the video for today. <laughs> anyway, it is eight minutes past two, and our guest in the studio this afternoon is the Deputy Fundraising Manager for the Children's Centre, and today we're going to be talking about the 50K in 50 Days Appeal. And, you know, we often ask people what brought them to the Isle of Man if they weren't born over here. They often talk about the opportunities, the beautiful scenery or the general pace of life. Uh, What brought you here, Lucy Chapman? Um, I met a Manx man when I was in Bristol um, and about eight years later he tried to escape back to the Isle of Man but (laughs) I'd had a couple of visits and I think it's a lovely place so I just came with him. (laughs) And uh, the crucial question of the day, do you put butter on your digestive biscuits? I don't. Yes. I'm not just, completely averse to the idea of it. It was I a no, Lucy. It. it was a no. That's fine. But I am she a dunker. Okay, this, that, that's a whole new conversation. We'll have to put that one on Facebook one time, won't we? Do you dunk or not? I think we have done that before, and I think we won on that one as well, Joe. I, I don't think I must have been in that day. <laughs> so, Lucy, just tell us what got you into a fundraising career. Um, my um, degree was in marketing and sociology, so I had um, a little bit of the PR communications with a balance of what's going on out in the world, what what problems people are facing. Went into events and marketing and from there in Bristol, um, moved into a PR and fundraising role, um, organising events for um, an older person's charity. And I've got to say, before that, I might maybe had a slightly skewed view of what happened inside charities. I thought, thought there might be a lot of cardigan wearing, maybe a bit of biscuit dunking. Um, <laughs> and I just realised how much passion there is in the charity world. People are working so, so hard out there. Um, I fell in love with working for charities um, and I've just moved moved from role to role until I'm here with the Children's Centre. Um, so you're over here, you've got a young daughter now. Um, what do you dislike about Pinterest so much? Oh, Pinterest. Um, 
It's a love-hate relationship, really. <laughs> um, every now and again, I'll decide to throw a birthday party, bake a cake, and you go onto print, Pinterest to get a few ideas. And the spectacular creations that people are making out there and the craft projects. And I'm thinking, I'm never going to be able to make a donkey out of milk bottle tops. I'm a complete <laughs> failure as a mother. <laughs> I want to know who these Pinterest mothers are. Who are they? Joe? is it you? Oh, oh, yes, of course. Yeah, definitely got time to make donkey cakes out of milk bottles, did you say? <laughs> oh, my goodness me. I know what you mean. It does make you feel quite inadequate, doesn't it? Yeah, I think Tom, um, my husband can see my Pinterest face of despair and he comes and gently prizes the iPad out of my hands. <laughs> we watch EastEnders for a while. Oh, no, 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 no. Pinterest EastEnders, I'm not sure which one is worse, <laughs> actually, Lucy. Makes you feel like a decent mother, yeah. though. <laughs> the thing that gets me is the emails that Pinterest uh, sends you to say, oh, we've, we've got some things you might like to look at. No, no, I wouldn't like to look at those, thank you. I looked at it once three years ago and I never want to look at it again. I've never actually looked at it. Can yeah, don't say? bother. Don't yeah. bother. But it might tell you how to, uh, you know, eat a digestive properly. Incidentally, we have uh, got some texts in. Digestive should be plain with proper tea. Wrong. Joe Pack. Yeah. Uh, digestive is a plain biscuit. Fact. No butter required. Fact. There you go. Quite That's strongly opinionated on that fact. One. Ooh, <laughs> peanut butter on digestive biscuits. Oh, no, no, hang on a minute. Then you seriously can't talk, can you? I mean, yeah. the two together, you yeah. know, washed down with a load of water, I think. Oh. Um, and somebody else says, cheese, not butter, after a meal, never dunk, rich tea biscuits are for that. Thank you Too very dry. much. Too dry. Too dry cheese on a biscuit cheese without isn't... butter. Oh, oh it's no, just... you've got yeah. enough butter in the cheese. Oh. We're going to talk about the app in just a second, but I'm just curious as to um, how you have dealt with being a woman in this industry over the years. Have you had any sort of challenges? There's always challenges. Um, I've been called a weather chick so many times, but that doesn't really worry me. I think you just have to up your game every day, don't you? And just be yourself and be true to yourself as well. So I love working in the Met Office because it's, you know, there's a, a nice sort of swathe of men and women and they're all really, really passionate about weather. And in TV, it's the same sort of thing. So from my point of view, it's great being me, being in weather and being on TV and radio. And it's great because at the top of the, the, the interview here, you were talking about, you know, sort of the science and technology and that clearly fascinates you and excites mm -hmm. you, doesn't it? So do you ever find it frustrating that people do just think you might just be sort of the, the face on the screen? I think it is a little bit frustrating sometimes. People always say, oh, you read the weather, and you certainly don't. It's all improvised for a start, and I do my own forecasting. In fact, when I studied mathematics as a degree, I was only one in nine female-to-male ratios, so, and there was a, a big dropout rate with, with females then. So really, it's been a bit of an uphill struggle, but be determined and be true to yourself. I think that's the, really the name of the game when it comes to being a female in this industry. Thanks for listening to our best bits of the week. If you missed any of last week's programmes and would like to hear them in full, you can listen on demand at manxradio.com for seven days after broadcast. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at MRWomenToday. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.